All right. I haven't run this by you yet, have I? I just told you I came up with the idea. Yeah. can't remember exactly how it was meant to go, but I remember the gist of it. <laughs> this is a fucking cracking start. <laughs> uh, all right. <clears throat> good? Yeah. No, I'm good. Okay, good. All right, then, Ian. What's up, coppers? Welcome back to the Cold Popularity Podcast. The only cold... Fuck. <laughs> At least I got all the words right this time. At least you got all the words right this time. That is, that is correct. Proud of you. Um, I hadn't... You had an hadn't idea. Cho- I, hadn't, what, what I, I had an idea. I hadn't chosen the phrasing yet, though. So, you know, that's uh, that's just kind of what happened there. It's the Cult of Popularity Podcast. What's up, coppers, and welcome back to the Cult of Popularity podcast, the only cult that does not have a mass following. However, you can change that. You certainly can. Hit us up on all the socials. Twitter, Instagram, Snapagram, Instachat, Facebook. What, you'd have to go like... My face. Instabook. Instabook. My face. Twittergrams. Did you say my face? Yeah. Mate, no. Spacebook. (laughs) Anyway, you get the idea. We're on all of them. Get on there. Give us a like. Give us a follow. Let us know that you're out there. So, what's happening this week, Trent? This week... We are kind of a bit, of a bit of an unusual sort of journey. So we're starting off. Ooh. Oh, no, right. No, don't worry. Are we start again? Are we starting again? No, no, you were fine. I ruled it. Sorry. Continue. All right. So this week we're discussing uh, the cultural impact of the absolute banger of a cartoon series, Ren and Stimpy, a film that I think everyone at least has seen once. It's a bit surely. like, um, oh, yeah, at least once. A bit like um, Shawshank we did Continuity. last time. Love yeah. it. In, uh, isn't it? It's, like, it's one of those films that definitely, it's, it's again, it's up there. Every, everyone's seen it. You've everyone's seen, seen it. it. It's usually in it. everyone's top 10. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then doing the uh, video game series Bioshock. Interesting game series. Very interesting game series. We have series. differing views on it. We do. We'll get into that. Uh, so, which one do you reckon we should kick off with? Uh, I say, man, let's kick off with, let's go video game this week. Let's start off with Bioshock. Bioshock. So... Obviously, this is the series Bioshock as a whole, yes. not as... <laughs> we're just doing number not, one. We're not just doing the first game in the series. <laughs> Relevant. Um, so, yeah, I've only played... I mean, I've only played bits and pieces of, of all three games. I finished... Well, I finished the first one, but I've played bits and pieces of the second and Infinite. I will say, I did love, in the first game, the twist with the Would You Kindly... Spoiler alert, people. Holy shit. Spoiler alert. Again, it's a very... It's a fairly old game. Like, what year did it come out first? Uh, 2007. 2007. Like, you've had 13 years, people. Yeah, that's... Yep. I don't know. Did you just question my maths then? I or? did. I did. <laughs> you made me question my maths. I was like, no, nah, it's 13. 13 and 7 makes 20. You know what I, no, I like about that, though? You can you can kind of pull, like, a kind of quizzical face to anyone whenever they say something. Especially and 9 times out of 10, they will question that start questioning themselves especially if it's math related definitely just give them a quizzical look like mm. yeah give you yeah, a bit of an eyebrow raise and they'll just be like did i do something wrong but no no i just don't take yourself mate. just fucking with you <laughs> um, uh yeah so really enjoy that the way that it you know the story sort of twisted around so that you're actually weren't in control of anything that you were doing mm, mm, yeah controversially I've only really spent a lot of time playing Infinite see I didn't enjoy Infinite as much I think the reason I didn't enjoy it as much is because the plot twist at the end of Infinite just seemed really forced like it it was just like oh we've had plot twists in the last two games we're just going to cram this one and tack it in on the end so you 
in that regard. Because I don't know what... Oh, actually, I don't know what the one in two was. I already knew what the one in one was, just because I, when I was looking through things on it. Um, so I guess what you're saying is that everything was good. Like, the game going across fine and everything, but then at the end, it just kind of... Bam, it was just kind of... It was just like we... Like, all of a sudden, just went left field. Like, we've always done this, so we're just going to do this for the sake of doing it. I wasn't planning to see, like, any sort of build-up. There was nothing before it that kind of brought it in. It just all yeah. of a sudden, they decided to tell you something completely different to what you thought, just because they felt like they had to. 100%. That's, yeah, okay. That was my biggest beef with yeah. it. I didn't mind the gameplay. There was no big daddies or anything in Infinite, was there? I don't think they were big daddies, because the thing about Infinite is it is set a good 50 or 60 years before one and two yeah which is crazy well, i love i love the whole big daddy's little sister dynamic mm-hmm. uh that was you know one of the things that really stood out to me when you played through because it, it was something completely different and the uh fact that you could your decisions in that regard made the the whole thing like the whole game change accordingly so like you could mm-hmm. either you could either help the little sisters and save them or you could harvest them and like take their souls or their spirits or their energy or whatever what you got from harvesting them mm-hmm and organs you got different well you obviously get organs as well you get different <laughs> ending endings to the game depending on what choice you make mm. now, that's interesting actually um because um bloke who made it levine i think it was hope it was levine um he he never he didn't want to have multiple endings oh really yeah so when he first originally came up with the concept he was dead set on there being one ending and then they changed it obviously yeah i guess Games, I guess, at the time were kind of going down that path. Around 2007 is probably when most games at that time were giving you multiple endings. And so obviously game producers were just like, nah, we want you to put more than one ending in, into it. And he also wanted to... I wish I didn't write this down. But the, he also wanted the way that the big daddies and the little sisters actually worked. He wanted them to be different. The way they okay. worked. And I wonder they how, how he wanted them different. Like what, what sort of thing he wanted. One of the things I felt really gypped were, with was in the second game, you can become a big daddy. You can. But you don't have... Like, you're not as OP as a standard Big Daddy. Like, you get kind of screwed. Because you don't have a little sister, though, or...? I'm not sure if it's because you don't have a little sister, but you just don't have the same sort of, like, kick-assness and thing, like, limits your vision because you're only looking out through the little fucking dome thing. And, yeah, it's definitely uh, not what you were expecting. You got sort of, yeah, screwed over massively. It wasn't like in Fallout when you find your first suit of power armor. (laughs) Because that shit's fucking sick. Is that, um, which Fallout? Three? Three... You find, yeah, even the, the power armor in four was really good. The way they did that, so that it was different. So, like, if you got your, ha- your helmet, helmet was damaged, it would, uh, you, your heads up display would fuck off because the, ha- the helmet was pretty much non existent. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had my helmet fucked up enough to do that. But yeah. that's, um, although I'm a bit of a weird one, I don't like using the power armor. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, off topic. Um, one of my favorite memories of Bioshock was I was actually playing it with my brother and the, the first one and we were going through this room i was watching him play and he was going through this room and there was like a looking around trying to find stuff and we we're looking at the ground and then he turned around and there was a pair of feet and he slowly panned up like something out of a horror movie and then just as he got to the like the face of this clown like monster thing it just went Bruh! and like attacked and it was so fucking scary like it was like holy shit it was just like so unexpected genuine jump scare and i don't get very many of those mm, here we go so this this was the reason two two ta- two two ta- two k games had took issue with the way it was so it wasn't so much what it was but it's the fact that here we go uh so obviously where 2k games expressed concern about the initial mechanic of the little sisters where the player would actively prey on the little sister which would have alerted a big daddy and setting up the fight 
with the player against the Big Daddy. Obviously because you're either going to save them or halves their organs. Um, apparently that didn't sit well with Levine. Two games said that they would not ship a game where the player gets punished for doing the right thing. Does that make sense to you? You've played the game. Yeah. Still seems a bit strange though. Like, I don't know, why not make a game where you punish someone for doing the right thing? Like... Oh, you know, games come under scrutiny. I mean, especially, I mean, we feel it more here in Australia than anything else. I guess games, and depending on what the content is in them, as to whether they even get make it to Australia. Um, depending on the... Like, what, the original... Um, well, not the original South Park game, but... Um, was it Stick of Truth was the first one? The first of the modern... Yeah, Stick of Truth, that... Era. Yeah, so when that got shipped out to Australia, there was, like, all the cut scenes and stuff were cut from the game. Did you ever play it? No, I didn't did, play did you see what they ended up doing? No. So they couldn't show the cutscenes and things because of what was going on in them. So you ended up getting like a still image of like a koala in a tree and then a very graphic description of what was meant to happen in the scene. That's awesome. Almost to the point where like I would say that probably the graphic description of what was going on it's was worse. probably worse than actually seeing seeing it that's awesome mm. we do get sort of screwed with some se- uh, censorship here though I remember playing Manhunt as a kid and I'm like how the fuck did this slip past no it didn't got banned actually it got, got banned, banned more than just Australia though yeah that is a yeah. very hard game to get a hold of in Australia um, I managed buying to buy it on Steam by I think I had to use, had to use a VPN to pretend that I was in Europe to add it to my games library well there you go because you, you can't yeah you go to jail after this episode no, no, this is weird. I guess that's the weird thing about it. There's nothing illegal about me owning it. You just can't it can't be sold in Australia. In Australia, there's and nothing it's a wrong with me. Horrifically violent game. It is, yeah. and cool. I got gypped anyway because it doesn't run properly. Tell you a funny story. Obviously, getting very sidetracked here, but uh, one of mine and Rachel's good friends is uh, gay, and he was like, "Oh, you know." Manhunt on my phone's playing up. And I'm like, man, you got Manhunt? And he's like, yeah, why are you into I'm like, Manhunt's fucking sick. Manhunt was a gay dating app. <laughs> <laughs> That's gold. I thought maybe like they'd made like a mobile port of it or something. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. No. That is actually pretty funny. Um, yeah, yeah that- that's funny. It's also not a bad name uh, for a, a gay Tinder app. It's a little discriminatory if you think about it. How so? It's only dudes. That's exactly what it's meant to be, though. Yeah, but if it's a gay dating app, shouldn't it be for, like, ladies as well? No, it's a gay man's Gay dating man's app. dating app. Funny story, while we're on that subject. When my uncle was newly single, my brother sent him a message. He's like, oh, I'm thinking about... He sent my brother a message. He's like, oh, I'm thinking about going on some dating apps and stuff like that. My brother's like, best one, all the slutty women are at. Grinder. That is a very much a gay dating app. <laughs> that, that very much is. That's the one that everyone knows about. Stitched him up really good. Um, potentially, just throwing it out there, because you're a little bit upset about the Manhunt app, would you call uh, an app for just lesbians Lady Killers? Ooh. We just found our new career. <laughs> Podcast is over from now. We're just making apps. You want to develop <laughs> hey, an app? What, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, moving right along, sticking with the Bioshock. Yeah, let's, get, let's get back to Bioshock. Hmm. Um, definitely um, a solid game series in most aspects. The gameplay is good. The, as far as the shooter goes, it's a very good shooter. Mm, and, you know, it's got those nice RPG elements in it as well, which are always You can upgrade nice your skills. Have. You yeah. can do different, like, telekinetic, telekinetic things and mm. whatnot, uh, which is pretty cool. Now, and there was a, a f- lot of good life find, like, lore behind it. Um, L- that's L-O-R-E. Yeah. And, a, and like, creative settings. Like, even, mm. 
you know, obviously, I think the first two were underwater, mm-hmm. and then the infinite, which is technically the first one because it's a prequel. Well, it's not, well, it's not even a prequel, though. That's the thing. It's just set earlier. It is. Although the expansion that was released for it ends up tying them all together. Which is cool. Yeah. So, um, Elizabeth, who you're following um, in Infinite, she, <laughs> she ends up doing something to set things right again in regards to everything for basically for the first two games by going back they go down to Rapture and set it up for the little sisters and everything to start off alright and that's how that game ends that's pretty cool so it's set a little bit before the actual first game no very cool but yeah, sets up a chain reaction event for the events that then take place in it. Yeah, nah, I like that. I like the fact they mm. have, have that all tied together, which is awesome. Now, there was a film in development. Indeed, there was. Um, however, that uh, did not go ahead. Got shit canned. Yeah, it did. I was going to... Not to put too fine a point on it. Well, I think they started developing it around... Uh, no, it was around 2008. Um, they take two and now to deal with Universal Studios to do with the film. Um, however, didn't go ahead. Due to budget concerns, and I think Levine, Levine, I don't know, the guy kind of the whole concept of the Bioshock story and everything else. Yeah. Due to budgeting concerns, everything else kind of just went, nah, we're just going to have to pull the pin. Probably good. Video game movies rarely work out. It's true. I think we've discussed this before. Uh, we have, yeah. The old uh, Lara Croft. Tomb that Raider. With, the, that, they were good, yeah. Uh, well, Doom, they, was, Doom was pretty average. Doom was very average. Even, uh, even the great one couldn't save that. Yeah, nah. That was... They yeah, they went about that all wrong, though. They changed things. They Yeah. That's the thing. They try and make it and change it and put it in for... Because they're trying to bring new people on that didn't play the games, but so they're it makes sense the movie, to them. They're targeting the movie, movie audience more so than the video game audience. Mm. So they're, they're not trying to make a video game movie for video game fans that have enjoyed the series or the, the game or whatever. They're making a movie for movie fans mm. based on a video game. Yeah, because the other problem is like the people, they've played the games. They know all this wealth of knowledge about the world and everything else that goes on in it. And then, because yes, there are people out there obviously want to go see the film, but then don't have all that back knowledge that you may need to fully understand and appreciate it. So they change things in it. Yeah, usually ends up being shit. Nine times out of ten. That's why if you're going to do something, do it. You know, if you have to break it up and put it over a couple of movies, it's better to do it that way mm. and then approach the whole audience at once, similar to the way that they did the Iron Man series, for example, out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where the first Iron Man movie, basically, if you've never read an Iron Man comic or you don't know anything about Iron Man, it sets up everything so you know exactly what he's all about, where mm-hmm. he comes from, everything like that. Second movie is where it starts just getting into it where he's going to kick some ass and do some cool shit. Third movie, closes off the trilogy, done. Mm. I think that um, they're budget non-limitations to a, to a certain helps. degree helps with that one though um, the game itself though um, was on for quite a sleuth of awards it's also been very highly praised though for the artistic style that's used throughout the it's entire very series all three of them are very unique with the, the way that it's uh set out artistically yeah it is exactly and it does very well um, in doing so and I think uh, this is people certain people have gone on record saying as well um, that it actually helped bring the video games themselves into an actual form or appreciation in the way of art an art form as well so I, th- I feel like games could have done that beforehand i'm sure there would have been something beforehand before bioshock yeah yeah definitely there definitely would have been something but no no goes those artsy types felt they had something to offer could have loved the artsy types the arts yeah what a bloody banana duct tape to a wall yeah is impressive apparently the fuck is up with that Right, I had a mate, um, and he he used to take real issue with art and th- things that people consider art. He would have lost his shit at the banana. Um, but 
the, the, he always would bring up the fact that there is a painting, inverted commas, um, which sold for, oh, it was like over a million dollars or it was a million dollars or something. And it's literally just a framed piece of paper. Oh, there's actually nothing on it. Someone's pulled an excellent scam there. No, but everyone knows it. Everyone knows that's what it is. But, but he's gone and given it some intrinsic meaning or something behind it. And, you know, and people look at it and it's like, hmm, yes, no, I can see what he was going for Fuck there. Fuck people are morons. It's, yeah, it's a, a weird thing. You know there's a dude that sold an air guitar on eBay? That's and, like, amazing. got a couple of hundred bucks for it and just sent someone an empty guitar case. That's fan-fucking-tastic. <laughs> Props to that person. Yeah. Uh, but look, Bioshock won a whole bunch of awards and everything else. Definitely, um, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Bioshock. There's, I think it is the dystopian alternative sort of universe that it resides in as well. Yeah. I think from me- for me, from memory, it's the I think it's the only, it's the first game I remember having vending machines for power-ups. When was Borderlands released? We should know this because we've already covered Borderlands. One moment, please. Nah, there would have been games with vending machines, surely. Not so much as vending machines. Obviously, there were games that had vending machines, but there was, I'm just thinking like factual using the vending machine as a way of getting your power-ups. I don't remember a game before that doing that as effectively. The original Borderlands came out in 2009. There we go. Like... In San Andreas, you could use vending machines to get, like, cans of drink for, like, health. But it wasn't like... Mm. It wasn't like you didn't gain anything other than health from it. You weren't... You didn't get supercharged and be able to, like, fuck shit up or anything. No, man. That's just unrealistic. Exactly. (laughs) Flying cars cheap. (laughs) Overall, Bioshock as a series, I would give that a solid three and a half human sacrifices out of five. Three and a half human sacrifices. Three and a half. (laughs) I agree with your rating. (laughs) I want to make you do the half sacrifice. Well, you don't kill him all the way. <laughs> you just sacrifice like the lower half. Yeah, okay. And top half. They just sort of Lieutenant Dan the rest of their way through life. <laughs> you ain't got no legs. You ain't got no legs. Alright. Very good. Very good. Now from Bioshock to Bueller. Bueller. Mueller, not Eugene Levy. <laughs> who, who was definitely not played by Eugene <clears throat> Levy. Um, I do have it on very good authority that it was Ben Stein. Which is also the teacher from Richie Rich in their classroom. It's the same guy. This is where we got all confused last time and it, we thought it was Eugene Levy and it wasn't. It's the eyebrows. It is the eyebrows. It's 100% the eyebrows and the salt and pepper. And a bit of the salt and pepper as well. Um, but I'd have to say, Ferris Bueller, again, is just another one of those films that you kind of can't not like. No, it's true. Like, I defy anyone to watch it and say they don't like it. Exactly. And if they do, they're a fucking liar. Mm. Um, obviously, very big, look, bigger cult classic, possibly even more so than Shawshank Redemption. Oh, definitely be a cult classic. It's um, created by a man who seems to make a lot of teen comedy films or just teen films, which have become usually cult classic. Cult classics in themselves. Um, John Hughes, um, who obviously also did um, Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, Sixteen Candles. So definitely has a bit of a, uh, a niche, I guess, to himself. Mm. Uh, but he, well, he wrote, co-produced, and directed all of it. Um, and he and he actually did it as a, as a bit of a bit of a homage to Chicago as well. An homage, a home age, home age, yeah, to the city of uh, Chicago, 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 <laughs> Chicago. Uh, this will be the second second film that we've done discussed in Chicago. So yeah, it was Chicago City. Hmm. It uh, seems like a pretty popular sort of place. I actually wouldn't mind going to Chicago. If I was Neither would I. It's a pretty cool city. Um, it does does seem like it's got a lot going on. Like um, John Hugh, John Hughes grew up in and around Chicago, which is why he wanted to do it and feature it 
he, he, like his aim was to feature it heavily within the film um, other than just making a fantastic fucking movie he wanted to uh, spotlight it and yeah he described he's described it as his love letter to Chicago this is uh, he, yeah I oh know sweet isn't it what a sweetheart yeah, he's going, I really wanted to capture as much of Chicago as I could, not just in the architecture and landscape, but the spirit. You really breathe a lot of life into that. I'm, I'm proud Thank of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying, you know. Hey, good on you. <laughs> good on you. Now, there were other actors that were originally considered for the role. Of Is that right? Bueller. Yes. There's, look, there's always other actors. Seems to always. be a recurring thing for any movie. There's always other always actors. Always other actors. Except for there are certain times where characters were written specifically for actors. That's correct. I'm pretty sure Ferris Bueller actually was written with Matthew Broderick in, wrong, in mind. It was actually the role of Cameron that was not written specifically for Alan Ruck. Which is weird, because apparently he has said that Anthony Michael Hall, uh, who had worked with Hughes previously, was originally offered the part but turned it down. But... He's also said that the had originally been offered to Emilio Estevez as well, who also turned it down. Emilio! <laughs> Any chance we get. Any chance. Um, which is, you know, good, good, good for Ruck. I mean, it was also then... Well, other actors were considered, which were Jim Carrey, John Cusack, Tom Cruise, and Michael J. Fox. Tom Cruise is considered for fucking everything. But it was around that time. Actually, that would have been... Actually, oh, it would have been produced 1985. It's probably a little bit early for Tom Cruise, really. It would have been... Top Gun being done by then? I'm thinking Cocktail. Cocktail was one yeah. of his first movies. He was, was just up and coming. Up and coming. Michael um, J. Fox, 85. That Back to the Future was... 84? 84, I'm pretty sure. Seems right. Don't quote us on that. Don't quote us on that. Um, but. Mm, but this is this is what Rock has said about Emilio Estevez turning it down, though. He's like, every time I see Emilio, I want to kiss him. Thank you. He was in regards to it because uh, Rock was 29 at the time that they filmed Fresh Bueller. So what, he was paying like what someone? He looked, 12 y- years he looked young. young yeah, he was paying someone 12 years though. younger than him. Well, good on him. I assume they would have been 17. I don't think they ever mentioned their age, but I assume they would have been about, well, meant to be about 17, 18. Yeah. He was, he was worried he was going to be 10, you know, well, you go, 10 years out of steps, maybe then to be like 18, 19. Uh, and that he wasn't going to fit in and he wasn't going to be, you know, down with the hippity hop. Uh, but then he remembered that when he was going to high school himself, he didn't know any of that stuff then either, <laughs> which is pretty good, I guess, way to look at it. Fair you, enough. You know what I mean? You, yeah. And 85. So Back to the Future. Back 85. to the Future. 85. But was it set in 84? Potentially. But I'm thinking about when the movie came out. So Michael J. Fox, 85 is when it came out. Mm. Then it fit. That's true. If it came out in 85. Mm-hmm. In, in regards to Ruck, apparently, he was not surprised to find himself cast um, as a younger character. Because when he was 18, he said he sort of looked 12. Fair enough. Mm. But you wouldn't tell, like, watching the movie. You really you never picked mm. that he was nearly 30. Yeah, exactly. It's not like Grease where you can see how old the fucking characters are. <laughs> Kanicki looks like he's... Fucking 50 and smoked a pack a day for his whole life. Without knowing it or not, Ferris Bueller's Day Off has had a massive, like, effect on pop culture. Oh, 100%. It's got, um, what, obviously, Bueller. Bueller, yeah. Um, which was classic. Actually, that was actually used as part of a political campaign as well. It was, actually. I actually do have something here in regards to it. Look at you go. Um, I didn't remember reading about it. It was mostly just used as a way of him. I don't think he calls out the, the whoever the opposite person's competitor was and they don't respond basically call it out for them on them yeah it was something along those lines of yeah just you know, and they got the the actual guy the teacher to do the do the ad as well yeah no ben stein yeah which was also pretty cool it is yeah i'm pretty sure ben stein's actually gone on record saying it's one of the favorite roles he's ever played it's like the tiniest fucking role in it the is. movie it's an extremely small role but Apparently loved it. Thought it was great. One of the kind of funny things or weird things is Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey, 
who play brother and sister in the movie, obviously, Ferris and Jeannie, were actually dating at the time. Oh, of the, the filming? Movie, the filming as well. Oh, really? That's a bit awkward. Which, which seems weird. Dude, that's your own sister! Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a bit weird. I did like the little touch, whether it was intentional or not. I'm pretty sure it was very much so intentional. That the, at the start where Ferris has tricked his parents into thinking he's sick mm-hmm. and he's having a little dance, the tune that's playing in the background is I Dream of Jeannie. It was mm-hmm. a theme from I Dream of Jeannie. And then as that finishes, it cuts to his sister walking down the hallway at school and they go, Jeannie, which is her name, obviously, but that's a cool little tie-in. Fun fact about the tune from I Dream of Jeannie. I like to hum it or whistle it in packed lifts full of people because it's a very easy song to get stuck in people's heads and they, <laughs> I just like to think of people driving home going, what the, how the fuck did I get this in my head? <laughs> Someone's You're an evil man. One day. You're an evil man. I am. Let's talk, some about, talk about some of the biggest scenes in it though, I think. Like, uh, obviously the parade scene is massive one of, one of the most famous mm. if not the most famous from the film yeah right oh it has such good scenes like yeah this parade yeah the parade probably be the biggest one though yeah yeah fun fact about that is when ferris is doing the twist and shout mm-hmm. by the Beatles, there's actually a comment that was made by paul mccartney himself uh that basically he wasn't overly stoked with the fact that they put all that brass music on top of the song so he actually isn't that can I stop you there? Yeah. The bra- is the brass music the like the actual brass band that's it's walking the in the parade? Band. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> it's like they didn't they didn't intentionally put it on top, but his exact part of the parade. His exact comment was, uh, "I liked the film, but they overdubbed some lousy brass on the stuff. If it had needed brass, some lousy brass, we'd had stuck it in our we'd we'd had stuck it on ourselves. Yeah. Which is a bit of a snarky comment coming from Paul McCartney. He's not wasn't normally sort of known as the snarky Beatle. John Lennon was probably more the one that used to say stuff like that. Mm. Like when he said that uh, when someone asked him if Ringo is the best drummer in the world and he said he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. What rough. That's harsh. Um, another, just whilst we're on the topic of songs that we're playing, uh, Duncan Shen yes. gets, uh, gets a bit of a good good airplay in it. Uh, apparently, I don't remember this, but I mean, apparently not only does Ferris sing it, so does Ed Rooney and Jeannie at some point throughout the movie did not notice that I, no I never noticed it either um, well Verus doesn't actually sing it he lip syncs it true that's true for splitting hairs um, Hughes co- <laughs> apparently Hughes called it the most awful song of his youth every time it came on he just wanted to scream and claw his face he was doing German in high school which meant they had to listen to it in school and he just couldn't get away with it yeah that'll ruin a song for you if you have to listen to it in school as part uh, of like, yeah. learning yeah so it would end up being Broderick's idea to sing it in the shower because he knew that he'd have to sing it later on on the flight right and so basically he just used it as practice time fair enough and that kind of makes sense that it shows you that Ferris obviously knows the song true true there you go. he's going to just get up there consistency is key <laughs> continuity we love a bit of it what about the what about when uh, Cameron trashes his dad Ferrari Oh. When they're trying to rev back the odometer, which is a stupid idea. <laughs> it was, but they're kids. They're kids. You know? Absolutely. One of them was 29, Josh. <laughs> Should have known better. Should have known better. Um, but yeah, wow. I actually looked into that a bit. Apparently that is actually um, a very, very expensive house that they used for it. Um, very expensive car by the looks of it as well. Uh, it was. I think they only used an actual... Um, was it a uh, Ferrari GT250? I think it was. Um, I do have it here. I know I do, because I saw it just a moment ago. Uh, a Ferrari 250 GT California. They actually did get one, but just for the close-up shots. Apparently, they're only ever 100 made. So, the car you see backing out that smashes and gets wrecked? Definitely not. Definitely not the car. Yeah, no. So, like, with scenes where it's driving and stuff, it's not actually 
one, they only used it for the close-up scenes where someone was actually sitting in the vehicle in and the stuff. Vehicle. Or where, yeah, whenever they had to do one. Um, yeah, because where was it? So it was the building that was used is known as the Ben Rose House. Um, it was designed by architects. Uh, it, was designed, it was designed in 1954, and the pavilion that the car thing was in was in designed in 1974, and it was once owned by a photographer called Ben Rose, who had a car collection in there. Well, it's called the Makes Ben sense. Rose House. Makes sense. Uh, so apparently, I think it was a friend of John Hughes actually owned the house and everything else at the time. And he and Hughes had been assured by a friend that they could prevent the car from damaging the rest of the pavilion, which implies that they actually threw, drew, drove a fucking car out that window. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so they, they fixed connections in the wall in the building, remained intact, and then Hades, I don't know, Hades, whoever it is, whoever that may be, um, ended up having to pay you, um, afterwards said, oh, the bloke you owned it, said to Hughes afterwards that, you owned, that he owed him $25,000, which Hughes then paid. Man, I could just pay people $25,000 and not worry about it. Yeah, here we go. So he says he had to remove every pane of glass from the house to film. The car crash scenes, every pane was weakened by age and had quite a similar tint. So then any replacement pane that would have been put in would have been obvious. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. And the fact that they were able to use the house because the producer on film, Ned Tannen, uh, knew the owner because they were both Ferrari collectors. Cool. Mm. There you go. Mm. That is uh, pretty interesting. Now, with the parade scene, we sort of touched on it before, but uh, that was originally scheduled to be before the museum scene in the film, correct? So the yeah, so the parade... Was- yeah, so in the, re- in the original cut for the film, which ended up being like, two hours and 45 minutes long originally um obviously you can cut back though which apparently was made easy because the fact that the whole movie only takes place in one day which meant that no one there were no costume changes really throughout the day and there are a couple that you see but effectively for the whole day everyone's wearing the same things when it came apparently they just filmed the whole movie and then any cuts that had to be taken out were done in the editing room afterwards that's handy Mm. Um, but yeah so the museum scene came after the parade scene originally and got obviously when it went through to test audiences was not well received which is understandable so this massively epic scene it'll be all you know like the rig up scene I guess you could say yeah from the parade and then you go to the bloody museum well I think think the whole idea was that though from what I could understand was you know Ferris and the, the gang's so Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan, their day builds as it goes along. Exactly. So yeah. they're they're doing more and more mm. outlandish. You see, shit. And you've just had this up scene, and then you've gone, "Fuck you yeah!" We've done it in the middle of a parade. Ferris is like in front of everyone, lip syncing songs and doing mm. what whatnot, and then oh fuck, now we're going to the museum. Like it flow wise. Because the museum scene itself isn't bad, like... Oh, it's not a bad scene. not a bad scene, but after following a scene like that... It wouldn't have worked. Oh, no way. Um, Which apparently Janus got a little bit upset about because... Well, that it wasn't received well because he started getting worried that they may have to cut the whole scene entirely from the film. Right. So, obviously, they rejigged it, made it first, retested it again, went down much better. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, he wanted to keep it in there because, again, he's showing off Chicago. He wanted to show off the art side of it as well. That's it. Um, yeah, it's actually... And because of the museum, it's actually considered uh, uh, one of, the, or one of I think, a movie that contains a lot more, like, expensive or classic artwork in it than nearly any other film because it portrays all that art that they go through and stand up and pose against to, against and everything else whilst they're in the museum. Yeah. yeah it's apparently had some quite, uh, quite expensive and highly revered works of art. I wouldn't know. It all looked the same to me. <laughs> we'll say Ferris, in, on one hand, 
is is a good friend. On the other hand, he's kind of a piece of shit. Ferris. Yeah. If you think about it, like, you know, obviously he was pushing Cameron to do stuff because he wanted to sort of get him out of his shell or make him do stuff and whatever. Mm-hmm. But then there is that scene where he, obviously, as the film is, you know, known for, breaks the fourth wall. Oh, very much what it's known for. Very much set the standard, I think, in regards to doing that as well. Yeah. And, and sort of speaks to the audience about how Cameron's going to marry the first woman he sleeps with and how she's going to treat him like shit and he's just going to take it because basically implying that he's just he's such a little bitch that it's just the way his whole life's going to be which is kind of a fucking shitty thing to say about your friend look it is I think that's the reason he did it though yeah no, I actually do find this this very good, um, I guess, sort of take on that whole sort of thing as well in regards to why Ferris did it and everything else. Is it tinfoil hat time? No, no, certainly not. It's, no, it's actually, a, I think it was a very good way of putting it. Oh, I swear I put it in here. It is the uh, theory that... Ferris... No, but whilst I'm looking for it, definitely go. But there is the theory as well, though, that uh, Ferris is actually a figment of Cameron's imagination. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, he's dreamt this character up in his head and Cameron's, you know, losing it a little bit, basically. Well, that's it, because, yeah, I guess the he's like a bit of a hypochondriac and he does as part of... Like, he actually is sick. And either, I think I've heard, like, two different ways to go on either. He's actually that sick, he's got, like, a fever and stuff. And in that, he goes a little bit delirious and creates Ferris. Or he's just full-on psychotic. Yeah. Kind of doesn't really explain... Ferris's whole family and stuff like true true why does, <laughs> very very yeah. active imagination why do, why do they need a backstory and everything as well <laughs> why wouldn't they well this is true I mean if you're going to commit to something go the whole hog and again the teacher calling out Bueller and things like that like it, it seems like a fair stretch to say that that's the uh, it's quite a stretch to say that that's, that was the case oh, here we go oh, this is it mate so this is the bit that I found and it's I guess it's not so much what I was thinking of in the room, but um, anyway, uh, it was uh, Richard Roper called the film one of his favourite movies of all time because it has one one of the highest repeatability factors of any film. So rewatchability. Mm-hmm. He said he can watch it again, but there's also this, and he says this with all sincerity that Ferris Bueller's Day Off is something of a suicide prevention film, and I, I think this right. was this was yeah this is a very eye opening. Um, sort of take on it that I thought it's like or at the very least it is a story about a young man trying to help his friend gain some measure of self-worth Ferris has made his his mission to show Cameron that the whole world in front of him is passing him by and that life can be pretty sweet if you wake up and embrace it that's the lasting message message from Ferris Bueller's day off and apparently actually has a license plate that reads S-V-R S-V-F-R-R-I-S break that one down for me save Ferris nice yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I'm looking at it, so it's pretty obvious. If I just tell you the letters, it's probably yeah, you don't get that visualization on it. But yeah, so it's meant to be safe, Ferris. But I think that's the thing, and I think another thing that John Hughes tried to achieve with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, though, as well, was it was a movie where pretty much only good things happen. Yeah, like when you go back and you watch it, you know, there's nothing really bad. Um, I think they had like that slight moment where uh, Cameron gets a little bit annoyed with Ferris, you know, about three quarters of the way through the day. Yeah. Gets a little bit fed up with what Ferris is doing. He starts to get really, get really worried about what they've done and what it's going to mean for him later. But it's not a big thing. He gets over it pretty quickly. He does. I like the fact that he, in his catatonic state, alleged catatonic state, he uh, sees Sloane getting dressed, apparently, and didn't pull any faces. Impressive. Props. When you're saying Save Ferris is the plant, there's actually the band Save Ferris and another band called Rooney that were obviously named after. Mm, mm. 
the the film all characters from the film as well i think there's a good little subplot that goes on in the background as well with the whole safe ferris thing and like his parents coming home and it's just all the flowers and gifts and everything else there and just the the chinese whispers that ends up happening as well in regards to what ferris actually has yeah and it just like i think by the end of it it gets gets to something i can't remember now but it's extremely ridiculous by the end of the film what the rest of the people think. I think he's, di- he's like he's dying. Like, yeah, like he's, like yeah. Speaking like he's of dying. knocking on death's door. Speaking of dying, so, uh, we were talking about, you Speaking know, of potentially, dying. you know, potentially, did they, did they want to do a sequel and things like that? And Ruck actually said, his actual quote was, I used to think, why don't they wait until Matthew and I are in our 70s <laughs> yes, I read and this. do Ferris Bueller Returns uh, and have Cameron be in a nursing home. He doesn't really need to be there, but just decided his life is over. So he committed himself to a nursing home. Ferris comes, breaks him out. They go out, go to a titty bar uh, and all this ridiculous stuff happens. And then at the end of the movie, Cameron dies. Yeah. I read that as well, and I blew it. Like I was reading, I was like, "This is it's really good." And then he just hits you with that last piece, like, "Wow!" I'd watch that. I would watch that. Uh, but it's just the very fine. It's just like, and then, and then Cameron dies. It's just like, what? If they're going to do something like that, I'd love to see him do it. So the whole movie is super lighthearted and fun, and then have like so much emotion poured into Cameron dying that it just breaks everyone. I reckon it would. That'd be awesome. That'd be a great little twist and like a mm. really good hook. Yeah, no, I read that same thing in regards to Ruck saying that. And I was like, what? That's so rough. It's dark. And I it love is. It. It's very dark. Uh, apparently, Broderick and Hughes did stay in touch for a while and, like, did, like, contact and talk about a sequel, you know, whether he's in college or he is at work or something later on and does the same thing. But they never they never could come up with something that they knew was... They knew it was just going to end up being a sequel for the sake of doing a sequel. They couldn't find anything that would actually be different or unique to what it was. I think that would then make it one of the, another one of those films where the sequel is, like, shithouse compared to the original. You mean, like, nearly every sequel? Like, nearly every sequel. There are exceptions to the rule. There are exceptions to the, the rule. There always part, are exceptions For the, the most rule. part, sequels appreciate. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I'm, gl- I'm glad they didn't, never did one just for the sake of doing one. They couldn't find a way that was going to work or be different or add anything new to anything else because they knew it was just going to be rehashing basically the same concept over again with nothing new being brought to it. So they never actually went ahead with doing it doing it which is actually awesome it's good it's good to know when you when to say when hmm. well that's it and i mean the reason they and they said like it is meant to be about just that that one particular moment in basically a young person's life just before you leave school before you you leave all of that safety behind and go out to the world and you pretty much never are going to be given that opportunity to do something like that again yeah i think it speaks to a lot of people as well because everyone's wagged school no, i don't know about everyone Most vast of- majority most people have wag school. If you haven't, do it, kids. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. We're not endorsing no, wag school. Do not endorse that. Do not endorse that. Whoa. Um, it was great of um, Broderick to come on and he did the um, the ad for the Super Bowl for the Honda. Yes. Which was pretty cool. Um, and obviously hyped up a lot of talk about there being a sequel. But there wasn't. But there wasn't. Breaking people's hearts. Yeah. Um, and I think in regards to breaking the fourth wall as well, I like how Deadpool um, had the end credits scene as well. Deadpool wearing dressed the same, up, yeah, dressed we, up we, like yeah, Ferris. Like, yeah, like it's pretty much identical. Yeah. Um, like the, the robe, the setting, and everything else, pretty much identical, and does pulls the exact same. You're doing it in, in to, to which regard as well. I'm pretty sure Ferris Elf was one of the first movies to have an end credits scene like that. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon you'd be right there. Mm, which was um, absolutely fantastic. Did you know that there was an attempt at a TV show? I did not. 
Yes, yeah, so there was a, actually a TV series in 1990, um, which was just called Ferris Bueller. Done NBC had um, a Charlie Schlatter as Ferris Bueller and uh, Jennifer Aniston as Jeannie Bueller. And oh, and Amy Dolan's as Sloane Peterson. Um, it doesn't mention here anything about Cameron. Poor Cameron. Poor Cameron. Maybe he already died by this date. <laughs> um, and it was going to be a prequel to the actual film. So, first of all, I'm sure he would have been some sort of... I don't like it. ...prankster. Well, apparently neither did anyone else. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I think it only made it to like 13 episodes or something. Didn't make it very far. Um, although, apparently, in the pilot episode, the audience uh, sees Schlutter cutting up a cardboard cutout of Matthew Broderick, saying that he hated Broderick's performance as him. So I think they were going to be doing it as a sort of Ferris Bueller was a real person there's a movie made about, about him. him. Mm. Yeah. Starring, yeah. It was a bit weird. Um, two reasons. Another reason why it was those because there was another series done by Fox which basically used the same sort of premise and breaking the fourth wall and that prankster sort of thing. Uh, Parker Lewis can't lose. Which probably ended up running for three seasons with the third season just being called Parker Lewis. Again. I'm not a fan of any of this. This is not sounding appealing to me. Well, apparently enough people like Parker Lewis can't lose. Ready to get three seasons. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you reckon? Four out of five? I'll definitely give uh, Ferris Bueller's Day off. Four and a half cups of Kool-Aid out of five. Yeah. I think four and a half cups of Kool-Aid is very, very fair. Hmm. It was almost perfect. Almost perfect. Didn't get to see Sloane nude. No. Whoa. <laughs> she would have been, been of age. We're talking about somewhere where you do eventually get to see women nude. Ren Stimpy. Ren Stimpy. Not in the original series, though. Not in the original series? No. It's a children's TV show, man. I can't be showing titties on there. Why not? Kids like titties. They suck milk out of them. Yeah, definitely like for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the crazy, just, I don't know, I don't know how you would describe it. It's the... Uh, off its head. Yeah, off its head cartoon that Ren was Ren was- and Stimpy. Red and Stimpy was full cooked before people knew what full cooked was. It definitely was. That show, just wow. It, yeah, like, you can't describe, like, you, it, it's one of those things you need to see to start to understand just how crazy and out of there was. Like, I was watching it um, the other day, um, and Liz was, like, there with me, and she's like, what are you watching? I'm like, I'm watching Ren and Stimpy. She's like, I hate that show. I'm like, why? She's like, it creeps me out. Like, I'm not even watching, I'm just listening to it, and it scares the shit out of me. She's like, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. Did she have nightmares? No, she did. Should have watched more. But yeah, I think that was. What was I watching that? I was watching Space Madness episode. It's actually one of my favourites. It is a good episode. It's yeah. a solid episode. It just. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great episode. Um, but. <sighs> Talk about cultural impact as far as, you know, impacts on pop culture itself. This, out of I mean, anything we talk about today, has definitely had the largest impact. Oh, definitely. Uh, obviously, so. Just kick things off. We'll go from the beginning, I guess. Uh, it's always a good place to start. Helps always, out lots of people. Oh, all right, fucking system around. Um, <laughs> so, Ren and Stimpy was one of three original Nicktoons. Nicktoons. The old Nicktoons. So, the first three were Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, and Doug. Doug. Doug actually surprised me. I thought Doug came later. Yeah, I thought like, Doug was a lot later. I thought Doug was, yeah, way later than that. But, um... That one, that one took me by surprise. Not Dougie the Pizza Man. No. You're Dougie the Pizza Man? You've got a pizza man called Dougie? No. He was a, he was a character on, one, on the old Pizza Hut ad. He was always the same delivery guy, and he'd be like, oh, it's Dougie the Pizza Man. I never had a pizza man called Dougie. No one did. Only the people in the ad did. That's disappointing. Well, maybe they did have. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So, obviously, that was started off debuted with those other two cartoons. Now, obviously... Yeah, I, I, they all premiered the same day. All premiered the same day. So, I... I remember Doug. Vividly remember Rugrat, the original series. Oh. Not all, not none of that all grown up shit. 
Yeah, look, I vaguely remember Doug as well. Um, I remember Doug being all right. I just, I don't know. And you had a friend really... who was blue. <laughs> you think you did, actually. That's cool. Didn't Cartoon live, man. Didn't live in a blue house with a blue window, unfortunately. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that, I mean, considering Doug and Rugrats, interesting choice for them to go along with it. As a third option. Because mm. you've got, I mean, what, you've got Rugrats, which is more aimed at younger kids. Mm-hmm. Doug was going through high school sort of stuff, so he was potentially yeah. oh, a, aimed, aimed this at is the teenagers. Very good. Yeah. Ren and Stimpy was more sort of fucked up and still aimed at kids, but I guess maybe that was maybe meant to bridge the gap between the two mm. two age groups. So between young young kids, because young young kids can ex, you know can appreciate fart jokes as well as teenagers. Exactly, and I think the other thing as well, though, is we've mentioned it before, a lot of the more adult humour, kids don't notice. Until later on. Until later on, you rewatch and you're like, oh, wow, what the hell? How was I allowed to watch this? We've discussed it many times. You Mm. do notice more things when you rewatch something. Like, if you rewatch Captain Planet, that shit is super preachy. It is very preachy. I still love it. It's not very preachy, though. But very preachy. Um, Cultural impact of Ren and Stimpy itself was... Well, it's been huge. Again, you know, out of all the things Absolutely that we've talked massive. about, it's massive. I uh, think we brought it up in originally in Invader Zim of it kind of helping set the pace for what couldn't couldn't be done on, on TV in regards to animation. Um, but if anything, Red and Stimpy set the standard for Invaders, even Invader Zim to be able to get to that stage. I make a big call here. Do it. I like it. Red and Stimpy did for cartoons what Elvis did for rock and roll. That is a big call, isn't it? Holy shit. Broke a lot of barriers. Broke down a lot of, you know, what people thought you could and can't do, could and couldn't do, could and can't, could and couldn't do with cartoons. It definitely, I think it definitely did um, change people's minds. But not only that, John uh, Crickfalusi, who will from here on out be pronounced, referred to just John K, as he credited himself on the cartoon. Um, Easy to say, too. It's so much easier to say. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. I nailed it like that first. I'm proud of you. He he had worked in animation, things like that. He'd also done advertising before. Come back to that later. Um, but he he didn't like the way that the industry was set up in the way that they produced cartoons. So they would use storyboard stuff, but they only had they were basically just told to copy and paste when they did their drawings. They got given their templates had to copy them and just use them which meant that most cartoons are restricted to a limited number of expressions and things like that and yeah. he didn't agree with it he was like well people everyone has far more expressions than what what we're expressing and just didn't like the form he basically is a bit of a, a bit of a system disruptor a bit of an anarchist no i'm not an anarchist but rebel he was a bit of a rebel and yeah he basically he didn't he saw that there was something wrong with the system and the way that it was being done basically you get told to you're told to do this so you do this and people voicing opinions differently basically didn't go anywhere right which is why he was really happy when Nickelodeon did offer him his own cartoon yeah because he pitched three to them he did he did pitch three different shows none of which were Ren and Stimpy um, they actually rejected all three but said they liked the dog and cat character which were the pets of one of the characters in one of the shows that he pitched cat dog not cat, not cat dog, dog though no. not cat dog though um, it was Ren and Stimpy now Obviously, there are. I think you've got some that you've made note of that were shows that have been influenced by Ren and Stimpy. Uh, look, certainly. Um, there were, well, it spawned two clones of Ren and Stimpy. So basically, shows which were, I can assume, in no way attempted to hide the fact that they were trying to imitate Ren and Stimpy. Because uh, it was very successful as well when it went on. Just uh, before we go any further, I actually had. 
um, double the viewership of other shows that Nickelodeon had on at the time, just during the first season, um, and went on to receive three times uh, for after that. And was for a time, it was actually the most popular show on cable TV, with several airings airings being the most watched scripted cable TV show in America in 1993 in the United States. That's pretty awesome. So like, yeah, like it was huge. I mean, there's this crazy new cartoon with all these two animals that were just doing sick, crazy things. It was unlike anything that had ever sort of come out of that stage. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, um, Hannah Barbera copied it with a show called Two Stupid Dogs. and Lame. Which um, was actually helped in part by former employees of Spumco, which was the production company that John Kay founded, which was used for the first two seasons of Ren and Stimpy until his, some say dismissal, some say he left, or he says he left. Still a little bit up in the air. Um, and the other one was actually a show by Disney called The Schnookums and Me Funny Cartoon Show. With a catchy name like that, how the fuck did that not take off? Yeah, I mean, you know your show is going to do real well when you have to tell people it's funny in the title. Yeah, it's really bad. It's <laughs> it is, it is. It's one it? of the worst titles I've ever heard of any TV show. Mm, it's fucking terrible. Um, but yeah, it's constantly cited as being obviously extremely influential. Um believe last episode when we spoke of uh, Rick and Morty. Yes. It was mentioned that sometimes when we see the weird droopy mouth drops on the characters was inspired by the mouths from all the way they were depicted in Ren and Stimpy. Yep. Um, not only that, it was also um, inspiration for Mike Judge who created Beavis and Butthead um, as well as a willingness for MTV to actually let him do it as well. Right. Yeah. Again, breaking down those walls and barriers and things and like that's that. That's it. Where- people were sort of more restricted and then it helped people to be able to make these sorts of shows. Well, that's it. With the success of Ren Stimpy, I mean, going off like it did, they were willing to take the risk of something that wasn't necessarily strictly for children anymore in the cartoon world. Mm. Now, one that I know wasn't noted anywhere, but I would be very confident in saying was heavily influenced by Ren Stimpy would be something that we've discussed previously, which is cow chicken. Oh, interesting. That's a... Yeah, cow chicken. I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't. Because it's very... Oh, no, I wouldn't be surprised if that was. Yeah, it's very, very similar sort of style, I guess. It is a bit, yeah. Like, just sort of outlandish, brash, crude humour. Mm. But I think the biggest one that we found was SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, definitely. Which, once you, once you know that, it's very easy to see... How? The influence. Yeah, definitely. Once, yeah. Yeah, you may not necessarily pick up on it because obviously SpongeBob SquarePants, in a way, the jokes and humour itself are, for the most part, obviously aimed directly for children. Even though Ren Stimpy, I mean, technically was meant to be. It definitely pushed the boundaries. Um, but in regards to that, like, Ren Stimpy is, I guess, known for those grotesque sort of close-ups on faces. With lots of detail and mm. everything like that, which is used heavily in SpongeBob mm. SquarePants. Artistically, it's it, you can see oh, yeah, from the drawing style and everything like that that it has drawn heavily on, pun very much intended, uh, drawn on Ren and Stimpy as inspiration. Oh, definitely, definitely. No cringe at the pun. You are right, mate? You sick? <sighs> Try to ignore it, mate. Try to ignore it. You know that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did, did obviously go through a bit of a rough patch with John Kay at the helm when it was at Nickelodeon. Um, Nickelodeon obviously had a little bit of... Took a bit of issue with it because it hit, was obviously hit with a lot of controversy um, whilst it was on there uh, for the dark humour, the sexual innuendos, the adult jokes, as well as just the shock value jokes and images 
that were used. Um, and it also encountered problems with Nickelodeon standards and practices as well, which um, he had to go up against a fair bit. I actually found, and I'll put this on... Um, Potentially, I want to double check some copyright and stuff like that first. Uh, but I'll put this up if I can. But there's a little uh, note here where um, the executives from Nickelodeon have given um, John Kay feedback in saying that he can't he can't do commercials in the middle of a story. It conflicts with the format and it doesn't make any sense. And he has literally just circled it and wrote a note next to it saying, "But cats can't talk." <laughs> Oh, that's fucking awesome. It, it actually is. I, when I saw that, I was like, that's actually fucking gold. Try telling me that this shit doesn't make sense. Wish, We've got talking animals. Yeah, I wish networks would just, like, fuck off and let artists be artists. Well, that's it, exactly. Like, mm. you know, obviously, you know, by ads, do they mean, like, the stuff like log? The fu- Yeah, the f- like, yeah log, log, log. What log, rolls downstairs? Uh, alone or in pairs, rolls over your neighbor's dog. Which is obviously a, sp- a spin on... The uh, the old slinkies ad. Yeah, look, I'd never. I just thought, look, cause it takes a few different things out of, um, I guess, toy adverts. Yeah, but the, the, the tune itself is very much around, based around the slinky ad. So you know, they walk downstairs, the loner in pairs. They make or think any sound, a thing, a thing, a wonderful thing. Everyone has a slinky, a slinky, a slinky. Doesn't even rhyme. That was, that was a terrible jingle. I may have what? fucked it up a little bit. But I didn't even know that. I'm just basically going off the jingle yeah, that right. I know from Eddie Murphy Raw. Yeah, yeah okay. at the end of his, at the end of the close mm. of the set. Um, but obviously, that's where um, John Kay's influence from advertisements previously came into it, and then he just slipped him in there. Like, what was one I watched the other day? It was um, was it was it for a cereal? It was like it was like sour milk. It was like milk. Oh, the like, milk. Yeah, they're like the off milk clump. Yeah, like the curdled milk sort of thing. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I know. I was watching. And then like the little brother comes in. He like goes to pour it out, and just like normal milk comes out of the box, and yeah. he like gets all upset. I was just like fucked. It is. And they even use they even use some of the other supplementary characters as part of the advertisements as well. Mr. Horse is actually used as part of like an ad, ad for Kitty Litter. Yes, and, there and is. Like, that's his first appearance. Actually. Yeah, he's like shitting in this like tiny little Kitty Litter tray. Mm. And he's like, mm, no, sir, I don't like it. That's yeah, good. I think that's um, that's the first time we see him speak as well. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, Mr. Horse was great, yeah, with his uh, classic, no sir, I don't like it. And then you had uh, Powdered Toast Man. Powdered Toast Man was actually fan-fucking-tastic. I was looking through into that one. Um, it was actually implied that potentially the only way that Ren and Stimpy get more powdered toast is by calling him. They don't actually go out and get their powdered toast because at some point they, they actually make a comment saying that it doesn't taste right unless we get it from Powdered Toast Man. So apparently, yeah, it's implied that's their normal way. Their normal way of getting powdered toast. Yeah. Which is... Hilarious. Now, can I just do a quick powdered toast, man? Do it. Powdered toast, man. Yeah, nah. nah, nah, nah that's all right. So John K actually was heading up the relaunch of the series Ren and Stimpy's Adult Party cartoon. Uh, that 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 worked. It only had two or three episodes aired before it got completely pulled. I think it was, was that one done by Spike TV? That was, yeah, it was late night programming, Spike TV. It was rated MA. Had more out, um, had more sort of adult themes, including uh, explicit, an explicitly homosexual rea- relationship between the main characters. Which uh, a lot of people have always speculated about. Yeah, but I like the fact that they didn't just say a homosexual relationship. It was explicitly homosexual, so... There was no doubt in anyone's mind. God knows what they were doing. Mm. Episode filled with female nudity. Then Billy West declined to participate in the show, saying that it wasn't funny. Yeah, 
basically, yeah, he thought it wasn't funny and it wasn't his... He just didn't want to be part of it, basically. He's like, fuck this shit, I'm going home. Which is, you know, it was fair enough. It was more... I think, I'm pretty sure he actually saw that it may actually very much damage his career as well if he did do it. It was a weird thing, though, because like, Spike TV ordered it for um, a cartoon block that they were going to do. Three episodes aired, and then they, they canned the whole cartoon block altogether. Yeah, a three aired, three episodes aired out of the originally ordered nine episodes. Because hmm. um, it did, because after Nickelodeon cancelled it, MTV p- did pick it up and they aired two episodes which didn't air on Nickelodeon. Um, I don't think that, no, that, yeah. But they also aired other episodes as well which Nickelodeon just never actually aired. Plus, they could also do it without having to, like, for instance, um, George Licker American. In episodes that he was on, they always had to bleep out his last name, Licker, because it was for children. Right. Um, there was also another episode entirely. I think it was Man's Best Friend, um, which is the actual episode where you see George Licker buy them from the pet store. Um, got cut entirely and was never on. Which I actually, well, I actually found it and I watched it to find out why. Because um, it was it was meant to depict, like, kind of domestic abuse and things like that. Holy shit. Well... I watched it. I can, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. It was a bit, yeah, it's a bit weird. Because George goes and buys them from the pet store. Who John Kay's also actually said that George Licker is actually the rightful owner of Ren and Stimpy. Right, he's their official owner. Um, he takes them back and he goes all like military commander style. Starting to try and train them. Yeah, he does. He doesn't. So he doesn't beat them though. I vaguely but he remember. More, but he more or less he rewards one and kind of just yells at the other. I vaguely remember like elements of that in the show. Mm. Yeah, but I, I thought it was weird because then because Ren gets really Ren gets really like scared of what's going to happen to him if he doesn't do it and do what he's te- been told to do. And Stimpy's just airhead and just goes along with it anyway and ends up getting rewarded and then Ren ends up like fucking going full mental um because he like puts on like a massive like you know like sumo like one of those suits that you put on and just have the people fucking go at you does that and Ren just fucking relishes in it and just goes off his head beating the shit out of George Licker and then Ren's just like yeah all happy and stuff he's just done it and then George Licker busts out and then Ren does something defies him and Ren's getting all worried that he's about to suck in shit kicked out of him and he just gives him 20 bucks yeah weird yeah like I mean that is like, yeah and then Ren says something else thinking that potentially now he's going to get and he just gives him another 20 bucks and then they all have treats and the episode ends very strange hmm. I mean that, that is a technique they did use at one stage I'm not saying they still do now but they did use in the military which would be if someone fucked up they would re- they would reward them in front of the other soldiers, but punish the other soldiers for their fuck up. So then mm-hmm. the other soldiers would be like, "Now nah, you're fucked," and it would breed that sort of like, "Don't fuck up, otherwise everyone's gonna nail you." Uh, which I think really well demonstrated in this is on a side note, Full Metal Jacket, mm-hmm. where uh, the, probably the co- co- uh, corporal pile, co- private pile. This is in. Which is Vincent... At the beginning, during the... No, not at the very beginning. It's in... It's about halfway through, I think. Uh, Vincent D'Onfrio's character, they find... The drill sergeant finds a donut in his footlocker and makes him stand up in front of all the other boys while they're doing push-ups and eat Mm. the donut and they don't get to finish doing the push-ups until he finishes the donut. Mm. And similar sort of mental sort of breakdown there. And then he does have a full-on fucking mental breakdown. Vincent D'Onfrio's character? Yeah. 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 He has the... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that's in the hat. I'm sure we'll touch on Full Metal Jacket. I'm sure it is. Um, but there's also other things that, um, in regards to, I guess, changes in the way cartoons were done that John K helped put in place, which was by... Pretty sure I did 
I touched on it before. They didn't like the way that the animation industry made the cartoons at the time. So when he took on the show and had his own show, he, he steered away from that and started doing like all the work separately, not you tracing off store off um like stock that they had in place and got everyone to draw everything individually and all the scenes, all the expressions and everything were actually drawn for the scene rather than just copying off things. Yeah. I think I think that makes it a better experience for the audience as well. Even if mm. you know, obviously they're pretty meticulous and they try to make things as perfect as possible, but even if things are a little bit off because they're they're individually drawn, it Mm. makes it feel more organic than if it's just everything's exactly the same and nothing changes. That's it. And I think he even came out and said, like, they did, They tried doing it saying it was more of a, like, cost. It, it was a, yeah, a cost-saving thing. It wasn't necessarily that much harder, but it was a cost-saving thing. Yeah. Which is, is upsetting. It is. Now, just glancing at my notes here, I did notice it was part of Nickelodeon's late-night block of TV shows that were set up for both children and adults called Snick. I remember that. I remember watching Nickelodeon uh, on what used to be Ozstar, is now Foxtel. Do you remember uh, what it was before Ozstar, can I say? No. No? It was, it was called Galaxy before Ozstar. Did not know that. Uh, but I remember watching that and watching Snick, and they had. Snick had all kinds of shit in it. Like it had uh, Ren and Stimpy, HR Puff and stuff. Uh, pretty sure it had like Bewitched or something in there as well. One of those sort of shows. Like the, the cartoon version of Bewitched? Yeah. Yeah. Which was weird. Uh, but Ren and Stimpy. Which was a bit weird. I don't know what that was doing there, but it was. And Ren and Snippy actually ran for five seasons in total, 52 episodes. Mm, did. Yeah, so what, John Kay left after the second season. Um, I think it actually was the episode of Man's Best Friend that Was the uh, tipping point? Yeah, pretty sure it was. Um, and then Billy West, the great Billy West, uh, took over the role of both main characters as he was doing Stimpy beforehand. Uh, John K actually tried to get Billy West to leave with him as well. And Billy West was like, mm, yeah, no, not really nah. much, but yeah, got a pretty good gig here going on. Um, yeah. Um, Interestingly, did you know that there was a Red and Stimpy video game? Uh, was there more than one? It was like, this is, um, we're going back to Mega Drive here, aren't we? Sega Mega Drive 2. Yeah. My brother actually had a copy of it and we played it. It was awesome. Oh, it was. It was a really good game. I make them like they used to do, though. Nah. And back in the old old Sega times, they used to make their movie tie-in games were really fucking good. <laughs> or like movie, TV show, whatever. They were back then. You don't get them like that anymore. Nope. Uh, now, obviously, big time. Bit of a bit of a. I don't know if you'd say it's a backhand compliment from Matt Groening, mm. where he said that uh, his praise for Ren and Stimpy was this. It was the only good cartoon on TV other than The Simpsons. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a backhanded compliment because he's it's definitely a compliment, but it's very um humble brag. Yeah, humble brag, definitely humble brag. Definitely humble brag. <laughs> um it was also um cited by uh JG Quintel as being a heavy influence for him uh on regular show. Yeah, I'd say that. Mm. Yeah, so I'm I'm quite the big fan of regular show, so oh that was pretty cool. It's also interesting how he actually so he actually came up with the characters or designs for them and everything. I've seen nineteen seventy eight. Like, like a long time ago. <laughs> that is a long time ago. It's also a good like what, twelve years before anything was ever properly done with them. Forty two forty two years ago. Oh look. Yeah. Oh, look, you're right for it. I'll just take your word for it. Um, but it was 12 years before he actually ever did anything proper, properly with them. Uh, apparently, Ren was um, inspired by a Elliot Erwitt, who was an absurdist, sort of satirical artist, a postcard where he where it depicted a sweated wearing chihuahua at the feet of some woman. Who inspired Ren 
Um, and I found two different inspirations for Stimpy, so take what you will. Uh, apparently, it was a Tweety cartoon, a gruesome twosome, where the cats had big noses. Uh, but he's also said that um, Stimpy just began as a doodle of a retarded cat that he used to sketch while talking on the phone. Direct quote from John Kay there. Which, yeah. So, potentially we'll take the second one, but... Plans how it came up, Stimpy. Um, I also found a good sort of summary in regards to to when people say the cartoon is disturbing and things like that. Is uh, John Kay actually said uh, that was never the point. It's never meant to be just a grotesque cartoon. The point of being grotesque. Um, he's like, I'm not ashamed of doing gross things, but that's not what it was about. It was about the two characters. Uh, it was about a psychotic little arsehole and his retarded friend who ruins everything that he does. Which I thought was a pretty hilarious. Uh, just found another summary another, for it. Another correlation between another cartoon. Mm-hmm. Just repeat what you just said. Psychotic arsehole. It was about a psychotic little arsehole and his retarded friend who ruins everything that he does. What other TV show, cartoon, brings to mind when you think of that? I actually had thought of one earlier after I read that. And I've got it because I know it's going to be the same one. Don't tell me. It is. Oh, fuck. If you said the, the wrong answer, I'm throwing a bottle at you. No, it just means there could have been more than one. Do you want a clue? I do, but I don't. Think around the same sort of mm-hmm. area as Animaniacs. That was exist. That's fucking exactly it. Fucking Pinky in the Brain. Pinky in the Brain. Yes, that is exactly the one when I thought about it. So I was like, that is also a very good description of Pinky, Pinky in the Brain. Pinky in the Brain, exactly mm. right. Mm. And uh, West actually agreed with John Kay in regards to, I guess, the, the power of characterization in the show. Uh, so they never played... He, this is a quote from West saying that they never played the gross stuff up, even though the kids loved it. None of it would have meant anything if it wasn't for really great acting performances from all of the characters. Yeah, it was nice. It's nice that they, you know, acknowledge the amount of skill and effort that was put into the, the cartoon. It wasn't just... Well, it certainly was. Like, um, same time, the former CEO or, and president of uh, Klasky Supo, who did Rugrats... Mm-hmm. said that John Kay tapped into an audience that was a lot hipper than anybody thought. He went where no man had wanted to go before, the kaka booger humour, which is actually apparently an actual legit type of humour. Fair enough. Yeah, I was looking at it because I was like, what the fuck is that? Is that just what he called it? Or what? Uh, no, it is uh, actually a word used, more well, a description for off-colour, vulgar humour. You know, crude humour. Piss and shit jokes, basically. Piss and shit jokes, basically, yeah. Yeah. Although, in that sense, kaka and booger would be shit and snot but yeah. toilet humour toilet humour I guess that's would be the best the, way to, to put what it. most people would actually refer to it as yeah mm. it's worth to mention as well that John Kay did end up making other cartoons after this do you remember the Ripping Friends the what now the Ripping Friends the Ripping Friends yeah I remember this it was um it was on Saturday mornings after um after recovery I'm pretty sure right so you get up you watch your Rage Top 50 countdown then you go into Recovery, right. uh, and and it's either or it could have actually been part of recovery as well. It was the ripping friend? I probably know it if I saw like a picture of the logo or something like that. Name mm. itself, not ringing any bells. Yeah, so it's like about these superhero friends. They they usually just disastrously fuck things up whenever they try to save someone. Had the idiot boy Jimmy. It was just like this kid who sat there and yeah, he didn't do much, but apparently he did have the perfect spine. So I remember, I remember what, this is the most distinct thing I remember from any episode of it was, like, whoever the leader was, the Ripping Friends, just turning around and being like, no, but young Jimmy here is actually the, the pinnacle of human evolution. Jimmy has perfect spot. No, don't remember any of that. Yeah, most of the time, Jimmy just kind of sat in the corner, drinking his own snot. Having a perfect spine. But he had a perfect spine. It was pinnacle of human evolution, apparently. Perfect spine. But definitely, um, no matter if you thought it was 
sick, crude, disgusting, or whatever. You, you can't deny the influence that definitely Ren and Stimpy has had. You can't. Um, fair, on found that- cartoons, animations, and other pop culture. Yeah, no, exactly right. You can't deny the influence. It, it's been instrumental in you know, breaking ground for things like Beavis and Butthead, SpongeBob, everything we've sort of touched on previously. Yeah. So overall, yeah, yeah no, definitely like. I don't think, yeah, I don't think we'd have cartoons how we have them today if Nickelodeon never given that chance. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Which is why Rand Stimpy getting the first maxed out score. <sighs> He's doing it. Five out of five gullible virgins. Five out of virgins. Fucks. That's the kind of people that cults attract. I don't fucking know. Look, I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> you can't deny that. <laughs> oh, I'm not supposed they're all for the leader, are they? Yeah. <laughs> Um, quite, yeah, definitely, de- especially the first two seasons. Definitely. Give, I'll, I will also give it five out of five gullible virgins. Awesome. I think the reason for the maxed out score, though, even though the, the three later seasons weren't as good, but just due to the impact that it had on the cartoon industry and the widespread influence, it's influence had. it had. Yeah, and definitely. Just, you know, just all the, the joy that I had it, with just researching this, just remembering so many great things from it. Like, oh, yeah. Like, I remember in, like, prime time, like, me and mate, we would quote it all the time. We'd around and be like, you idiot, you worm. Yeah, good shit. Like, oh, Ren, what a crazy psychotic little fuck. Gotta love him. And just Bimby, his happy-go-lucky friend. Dumb as shit. Mm. I guess, well, shit comes that time. I was about to start wrapping up. We haven't even drawn yet. We haven't even drawn anything yet. What are you doing, mate? All right, let's draw some things out of the Hats of Destiny. Hats O Destiny. Yeah. So, what have you got? I've got video game, I guess we'll go series, Silent Hill. Silent Hill? Oh, shit. That shit does give you nightmares. That will give you nightmares. That will fuck you up. All right. Uh, what else have we got here? Film. Film. One of your absolute favorite not at the roxbury oh that actually is one of my all-time that's like personally that yeah fuck yeah holy shit fucking love that movie so fucking much nice and like that that oh, fuck yeah we can discuss about how it's the only good thing that chris katana ever did well have you not seen corky romano yeah he's not very good you guys want some cookies not a very good actor no i say he was a good actor but corky romano was funny Right. Well, we can discuss it. And TV series, Better Off Ted. Better Off Ted. That is definitely something I put in the hat as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually thinking two out of these three were put in there by you. Yeah, look, that would be a fair assessment. I'd definitely put an eye rock in. Better Off Ted. Go check it out for yourselves, people, before the episode comes out. There are only two seasons. But, dose. yeah, dose. Uh, but holy shit, that show should have... Should, should have gone for much longer. I'll tell you more about it next time. Right. A lot to be excited about for the next episode. It'll be big. As I said at the start, don't forget to follow us, like us on all the socials. Uh, if you haven't already, give us a rating on wherever you're listening to this badass podcast. And, you know, if you don't agree with our ratings that we've given the things today, let us know in the comments, wherever you're listening. Yeah, definitely very... Or Facey. Yeah, tell us. Please t- give us your ratings or thoughts. On the uh, way that we've, we've rated our, our choices today. Uh, but, you know, till next time, same old, same old. Cop that.